0: series called How Not to Read the Bible. Um, This is actually going to be our last one in this series, and then uh, next week with Lynn and Holly, we'll kind of uh, bridge off of that, and then we're going to start a series at the end of the month called The Journey, and uh, we're going to invite you to take a journey with us, and I believe you're going to love it. I believe it's going to stretch you. Uh, Some of you may be stretched more than others, but uh, I promise you at the end of it, you'll thank me or at least in heaven, you'll thank me. So uh, we'll walk through that starting on uh, February the 26th. And so as we've gone through this series, um, we've talked about the foundation that was laid in this book in part one of the book. And there are four main points that I've reiterated every week, uh, keeping in mind every time we read Scripture, the Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. So we cannot read it as if it was written last weekend. We have to read it in the ancient context it was written in so we understand what is being communicated, so we know how to apply it to our lives. It is applicable to us today, but we have to make sure we are good students of the Scripture. The Scripture itself actually tells us to be good students of the Scripture. The third one, never read a Bible verse. In other words, I I know we love to put them on our coffee mugs and our t-shirts and um, we love to put them everywhere, but when we do that, please make sure that we're understanding the context of that verse because I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Praise the Lord, Philippians 4.13. That verse is not saying I can do all things through Christ. It means I can do the things, I can take His yoke upon me and I can do everything according to that yoke. Not everything according to my yoke, okay? But I can twist that verse, and God's going to make me a great basketball player if I write Philippians 4.13 on my shoes. Praise God. I can do all things, win an NBA championship through Jesus Christ. I'm not going to deny that God can help us, but he's not interested in NBA championships. He's interested in things that last for eternity, okay? So he wants to transform our lives. And if NBA championships won't transform your life, he's not into you having that. So, that's the God that we serve. He wants what's best for us. You know that. When you go to the store with your children, you don't buy them everything they ask for. You don't give them everything that they ask for. You give them what is best for them, hopefully, as a parent. So, never read a Bible verse. And then the last one, and probably the most important one, all of the Bible... Points to Jesus, and that foundation is used throughout the book in Part Two to talk about some of those strange Old Testament laws and how we apply them. In Part Three, how we do take some of those passages about women and the role of women in the home or in the church, and how do we understand them? the The Bible and science. How do we understand Genesis chapter one? How do we understand some of the, the things that we're told? Early on in the Scripture, do we think of them like the way a Western scientific mind would think about them? Or do we think about them the way an Egyptian slave or a Hebrew slave coming out of Egypt would have thought that with them and wrestled with them? And what are they? what's the message being communicated in Genesis chapter 1 and how do we apply that? And I honestly believe the message being communicated in Genesis chapter 1 is embrace the way God has set up the world. There is a yoke that God has used to set up the world, and it's a seven-day rotation where God is on His throne resting in His kingdom on day seven and every day after that. There is no evening and morning on the seventh day. The seventh day lasts forever, and we traced that through Scripture as we looked at that part, and then last week when we talked about Jesus being the only way, I've alluded to the verse in Matthew chapter 11. If you want to throw that up on the screen, Matthew chapter 11 verse 28, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling us to follow him in a way of life and that way of life may be easy once we embrace it in the sense that it it brings rest but it is not easy in the sense that it goes against the grain of our world when we interpret the scripture when we look at what jesus is saying we have to understand that jesus is not saying you know follow me add me to your life and then i'll give you a ticket to heaven so when you die you get to come be with me jesus is granting us access to the kingdom of heaven on earth now Now, the kingdom of of heaven will not be fully realized till Jesus comes again, but we keep striving for his kingdom to come. And the only way to do that is to live according to his kingdom, not according to the kingdoms of this world. I showed you um, a graphic last week. If you can throw that next slide up on there. Um, There are two kingdoms that are represented throughout. I did better this week, didn't I? Um, There are two kingdoms represented all through Scripture, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of empire, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of shalom. That word shalom literally translated just means peace, but it is so much more than peace. It's about wholeness. It's about rightness. It's about healing. It's about life. It's about freedom. It's about salvation. It's like a total sense of complete well-being. That's how the Jews would greet each other. Shalom. Shalom. The well-being of God on your life. How many of you want to live under a cloud of shalom? Man, I, me, I want to live there. But that doesn't mean everything in my life has to be perfect. I can live under shalom and fall asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm if the kingdom within is greater than the kingdom without. But for most of us, we want to add Jesus to our boat, but we don't want to make Jesus the center of our lives. And so when we're on the boat, we're just like the disciples. What? Are you going to? Don't you care? We're drowning. And Jesus is like, don't you believe yet? How frustrated he became. But he never gave up on them, he loved them. His yoke is easy, his burden, burden is light. If we are committed to following after him, He will come to break that mindset. The people of Israel are a great example of this because when they come out of captivity, you have to keep in mind, Hebrew slaves um, were in Egypt slavery for 430 years. Imagine being a people enslaved for 430 years. Context. The United States of America is 247 years old. So let's wait another 183 years and then see how hard it is to break out of the American mindset to go against that grain. They have a slavery mindset. And so when they panic, what do they want to go back to? What's familiar? Even though it's slavery in Egypt, let's go back. And we look at that and we think, oh, those, why did they want to go back to slavery? Every one of us, same thing. When it gets hard, we want to go back to what's familiar, even if it's not the yoke of Jesus. I mean, oh, it's, it's moral. I've got Bible verses to prove it. But you can twist the Scripture and make it your yoke and not His yoke. That's why we want to be good students of the Word to make sure I'm taking His yoke upon me. How do I know if I'm taking His yoke upon me? Because my life starts to produce more peace, more joy, more love, more hope, more faithfulness, more self-control. If my life is not increasing in those measures, I need to step back and say, well, whose yoke am I carrying? I mean, that's the reality. I mean, it's not. Con- I'm not trying to say you're not on your way to heaven, you don't have your ticket punched, but I'm saying if you want the kingdom to flourish in your life, you have to embrace the way of Jesus. It, you do not flourish under our own way. We don't flourish under fear. We don't flourish under lack. We don't fur- flourish under force, under stick or sword or self preservation. God took them into the wilderness to teach them to trust and not fear. All of their lives, for 430 years, it was about fear fear of Pharaoh, fear of the slave taskmasters. God has got to get that out of their system and get them to trust Him. They were taught about the gods in Egypt. If you didn't please the gods, you would get a plague. If you didn't please the gods, and these gods were harsh. They wanted you to do certain things. Maybe even sacrifice your child in order to please them. And he's got to break them out of that mindset and say, you don't lack anything. I am enough. And the way he taught them was to give them bread from heaven, but only enough for today. I don't want you to hoard. I don't want you to think you have to get enough for tomorrow, too. I want you to trust that I'm going to come back tomorrow and give you manna. That's hard. When you've been a slave for 430 years and you're like, I, uh, I don't know anything different. It's an invitation. It's not force. Why does revival not, Why can't I just make revival happen? Because the kingdom of God is by invitation. The Holy Spirit will not force us to do anything. But he will invite us to come. Hey, come away. Come over here. Quiet yourself. Be still. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have time. I don't have time to be still. I have too much on my schedule. I have too much to do today. I have too many demands. I have taskmasters. But give me peace as I go about my my busy, hurried day. Give me peace. Even though I don't Sabbath, I follow all the other nine commandments. But that one, you know, that, that was for yesterday. Or is it ingrained in the foundation of our world? And because we're going against that grain, we don't know peace. Again, when we talked about that, if you missed last week, you're going to have to go back. Because if you don't know, you can't start by just doing it all. You have to start somewhere. Where do you need to start to change your pace? Where do you need to start to change your lifestyle so that you begin to follow the way of Jesus? In America, we celebrate The the productivity, the ingenuity of great men who have like done these wonderful things like our Elon Musk and uh, Steve Jobs and President Trump, like these great businessmen. But if you look at those men, look at the people that are extremely successful according to capitalism and the American way of life and look at the carnage of relationships in their lives. Look at the number of divorces. Look at the number of people they're, they're estranged from. Look at the lack of peace, the lack of health in many of their lives. It's not the way of the kingdom. It makes business sense. It's a great way to make money and build possessions. It's just not kingdom. And we celebrate that sometimes in America, and we wave it under the the auspice of the Bible, that God is on our side. I don't, I don't know if he is. He's on everybody's side. <laughs> the question isn't whether God's on our side. It's whether we're on his side. He's got a yoke. Are we carrying it? That's a great question. So, whew, um, that's been a personal journey for me, too. Um, I just love the way that the Holy Spirit is using uh, the Scripture to, to help me and to grow. Um, but there's, there's more I could unpack. But I, I think this is foundational Uh, The reason I spent two weeks, and now really a half a week, unpacking some of that is I think it's foundational to who we are as a church, to who we are as individual believers, and uh, we're going to keep hearing about it as we go through the year. So if you don't like that message, uh, you're going to have a rough year here at Restoration Church, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to embrace the yoke of Jesus, um, and eventually, we're going to like it. Uh, I think it was it Isaiah that had the yoke, God had him put a yoke on, and then the people broke it. And he's like, if you want to break the yoke of wood, I'll give you a yoke of iron. (laughs) I love it. I mean, that's the way God works. It sounds like a punishment, but he's like, you have to learn this because I want you to flourish. And flourishing is not breaking my yoke. Flourishing is embracing it. And if you don't embrace it, I'll send the ruthless Babylonians to take you into exile because you're going to learn it because it's going to cause you to flourish and I love you. That's great. So, let's talk about the horrors of the Bible, shall we? Part 6, I've titled this message, The Horrors of the Bible. I actually joked that the reason I had to wear the Eagles shirt today was because we were talking about the horrors of the Bible, so mm, it was so appropriate. I mean, these fans not only throw snowballs at Santa Claus, they throw beer bottles at Vikings fans. Uh, sometimes the fan base of the city of brotherly love is less than brotherly love. And so. Uh, but please do not judge all Eagles fans by some of the you know, less nice Eagles fans. They're not all like that. I've met Tim. Tim's a great guy, and uh, I don't know why he likes the Eagles, Uh, because obviously God shines on Florida and the dolphins are his team. But anyway, that's beside the point. So as we talk about the horrors of the Bible, um, this is probably the thing that the majority of people who wrestle with the Bible um, really wrestle with. These are the things that there just aren't always good answers for. Um, I'm going to try to provide some today, but it's not there. And when you stop, in the book, he he challenges us to stop and think about the way we've sanitized some of the stories in the Bible to teach them to our children. Uh, And we even sing cute little songs like, uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And we don't think about the fact that all the women and children were killed. And slaughtered, but we celebrate that the walls came tumbling down. Uh, we do that. And or one of my favorite songs, I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Woo! I mean, we're celebrating the fact that the Egyptian army was drowned. I mean, I get it. It just doesn't sometimes make sense. We I mean the scripture teaches us don't celebrate when the wicked are perished, when the wicked are destroyed. Like we're not supposed to live that way. And so as a result of it, it creates a lot of memes similar to the one here. This is the parental advisory meme that you're supposed to put on your Bible. Uh, warning, don't let your kids read this. Um, I, you know, the, to me, the last story in the book of Judges, um, man, is like the worst story ever. Like the the guy whose concubine gets basically gang raped and then killed and so he cuts her up into pieces and ships her body parts all over the the nation to like and it's just like oh my nc17 on that thing because it's like what why is that even in the bible but when you do what is right in your own eyes that's where society ends up and even as the people of God, that can happen. And so maybe you've already made peace with some of these um, passages of Scripture, uh, but you're probably going to encounter people who haven't. And so hopefully we'll give you some tools on how to wrestle with that. But I want to share a quote with you from one of my favorite teachers. It's a guy by the name of Marty Solomon. And he wrote a book that was just recently published called Asking Better Questions of the Bible. And this is what he says, I'm a teacher who passionately encourages people to think critically and ask big questions. I believe we should be free to doubt and let those doubts carry us into deeper wonder and curiosity. Our doubts shouldn't scare us, but neither should we embrace them as a place to settle, a permanent state of being. Doubts are invitations, opportunities to continue the journey of discovery, That's why I try to cultivate a kind of learning space, a place where doubts are welcome and find a voice. It's why I talk about the overlooked historical context or the cultural assumptions that could be driving the biblical conversation. I love to examine the theories put forward by academic experts who've given their lives to studying these details. Questions invigorate my study. Many of these experts probably wouldn't share my commitment to the Scripture's inspiration. The word text, the world of textual criticism can be a cold, analytical place. But here is what I know. The discoveries and proposals that I have found make the Scriptures come alive and burst with Keller. As we search through the data, pondering the conclusions and doubts of others, considering things that may seem off-limits at first, that practice, far from driving us from the truth, further reinforces the power and the beauty of the text, what I often call the Bible. We become people who take God's Word more seriously when we think through and grapple with the implications of these ideas. In other words, when we read the Bible quickly every day and we just say, oh, yeah, that, that's in there, but, you know, he, you know whatever, and we don't actually start to question and dig and find out what's going on, and we don't study the Scripture or read all of it, how can we say we take the Bible seriously? How can we say we value the Word of God if we spend five or ten minutes in it a day and that's it? We don't take it seriously. We do misinterpret it. We do misuse it. We have to be better students of the Word. In the book that we're reading, Dan Kimball talks about putting a Quran cover, you know, the, the holy book of the Muslims, the Quran. Here he put a, a cover on a book, on a Bible, and he put some scripture verses out to, to test how people would react to them. Leviticus chapter 26. If you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, He lists off what's going to happen. And then in verse 29, he says, You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is everyone's favorite verse to talk about. PG-13. If two men are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Imagine people thinking those passages of Scripture are from the Quran, and their reaction to that. Oh, Islam is such a terrible, violent, like, oh, it's just so bad. And that's exactly how they reacted. But then their reaction when they were told those actually come from the Bible, oh, well, they must mean something different, right? What do they mean? There's lots of difficult passages. If you read Exodus chapter 11, listen to this as if it was the first time you've heard it. so hard to do. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, Okay, I get that. To the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing, I bet, throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be. I mean, when we read that Herod killed the babies in the Christmas story, man, we're like, oh, Herod, that's. But Scripture says God did this one. There was no other way. This is what had to be. First Samuel chapter 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, Children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. There are billboards that go up across the country, similar to this one, I Hate Babies, God. And look at the Scripture references that they reference, where God says over and over in the Scripture, kill the infants. It really does make one think, doesn't it? I mean, even if you have settled this in your mind, I hope you're seeing why some people who don't have an understanding of Scripture have a hard time understanding why with all of that the church can say abortion is wrong. I mean, at least think about it for a second. Put yourself in their shoes so you know how to have a conversation with them and not just call them a baby hater or a baby killer and not just throw blood on them and just treat them as if they're not a human being that needs to also be cared for and loved and understood where they're coming from. Or this other meme, the Bible Kill Count, (laughs) that talks about all of the people, the deaths in the Scripture that God is responsible for, and then the, the deaths that Satan is attributed. Interesting, isn't it? Here's a quote by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is just a famous atheist who um, thinks God is dead. This is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I should get an award for reading that correctly. (laughs) I've practiced. But that's what Richard Dawkins thinks as he reads the Scripture. So how do we respond as Christians? Well, the one way that people respond is this way, the no-apology approach. God did it. He's God. He can do anything He wants, including killing people yeah, he is God, I just don't like that approach. I think it devalues what other people are wrestling with and it doesn't help them in their journey toward him. And so it's easy for us to just say, you know what, he's God, who am I to question who he is? Well, in First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 11, David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. If you read the Psalms, David questions all the time. There's no problem with questioning or actually just wrestling with your own emotions when you read, but we skim over some of these passages, so we're like, well, I don't know what those mean, but sometimes it's in the wrestling with what does that mean, that I actually come to know the God that's going to help me in the darkest times of my life, and when we just gloss over it and think, oh, well, he's God, he can do whatever he wants, we don't develop the type of relationship with him that actually grounds us in our own storms. Or helps ground other people in their own storms. Questions are meant, these doubts are meant to draw us closer to him, not push us away. In John chapter 6, when Jesus, again, followed by a large crowd, says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and many of them turn around. And he turns to his 12 and he says, do you want to leave too? And I love Peter's response. Lord, to who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It doesn't make sense to us. That's a hard teaching. But we're here. And hopefully you'll explain that one someday. That's our approach. There's another approach which is becoming more and more popular in our world, which I don't like either. It's the Bible is wrong approach. The Bible is wrong. Uh, He goes into greater detail in the book in some of these. I don't have time for that today, but this is the essence where God didn't command any of the violence in the Bible. Uh, That that was misinterpretation. Uh, The Israelites got it wrong. Uh, Marcion, who was one of the early church fathers around 140, this was very popular to him. He was very famous for being able to take parts of the Bible that just didn't make sense or were hard to understand. Let's just remove them. Let's just put them to the side. Let not, we don't want people to read them and get further confused by them, so let's just say that that shouldn't be in there. When we start to say that parts of the Bible aren't true, if I can't trust all of it, I can't trust any of it. It's either inspired or it's not. And so we have to find a way to wrestle with this. Um, out of this thought process will be the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different than Jesus. The God of the Old Testament and Jesus are the same. They're the same God. Jesus came as the exact representation of God. He came to clarify. The problem is the way we look at the God of the Old Testament is the problem. And we have to make sure we look at the God of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Jesus, although also, was not Mr. Nice Guy, he talked about hell, he talked about eternal punishment. He talked about what would happen if you would continually reject God, if you become stiff-necked and stay that way. He was very clear that there would be eternal punishment. So Jesus was not all, love your enemies, be kind, be good, like God is just going to keep forgiving you. Oh, I'm merciful. Um, they're the same, the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, here's just one small example of how sometimes we misinterpret the Old Testament. Jesus, not just us, but even the people of Israel. Jesus comes along in Matthew 5.38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I mean, that's in Leviticus. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's there. But Jesus is saying, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. See, when God gives this law, what God is trying to do in Leviticus is help them with the, the damages that should be done the punishment ought to fit the crime. Because what happens in a society when the fun punishment doesn't fit the crime, what we do is we want to we get revenge. If someone punches me in the eye, well, I'll show you. I'm going to break your arm. I'll one-up you. And so the point of this law isn't that you have to do it. If someone gouges out your eye, you have to then gouge out their eye. It's that the punishment should not be greater than that. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, but I've come to actually give you a better way. Turn the other cheek. Oh, because if you really want to overthrow evil, in the words of Gandhi, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Wow, that does make sense, doesn't it? Am I saying there should never be punishment for crime? No, the Lord gives the sword to the government to punish evildoers. Absolutely. It's there. It should be done. But as people of the kingdom, I don't have to always get even with those. In fact, if I want them to come into the kingdom, if I want the power of God to be released in my life and in their life, I act like God. And He is merciful. And He has never treated me as my sins deserve. And so you're not going to get there overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be able to just say, I'm going to forgive everybody that does anything wrong to me today. I can't even drive down the road without like, honking at someone or being upset that they like, are not following the traffic laws. Hello. But maybe if I start to take his yoke upon me, I'll get there. It's not about being there tomorrow. It's about being on the journey there. And I long for the day when the lion lays down with the lamb. And we've relegated our theology to the fact that that can only happen when Jesus Christ comes and steps on the planet again. Hallelujah. Until then, we just have to, you know, hunker down, buy some guns, and just be ready. Or maybe we can actually start walking that way now. And you can actually create a pocket somewhere on the earth where heaven opens up and God's glory comes and rests on a city. Ooh! That's going to be costly, but I want to go there. So, how do we make sense of of all of these difficult passages? Well, one, don't read a Bible verse. Make sure you take all of these difficult passages and lay them next to things like Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You always have to keep it in context. Keep the the difficult passages in the context with all of the passages so you don't do this I don't know if you've ever seen the preview for the movie Scary Mary have you ever seen the movie Scary Mary here one minute it's a preview watch this seen the movie Mary Poppins please go watch it and you'll realize that's not the story but when you start pulling out some scriptures about being dashed against rocks and we lose sight of the the story of the bible in the book dan gives us lots of uh, ways to try to make sense of some of this one of the things he reminds us is that most of the violent bible passages are a short limited time in biblical history they're not like all scattered throughout all of the old testament there's a period of time where it's not just a random killing god is trying to bring a people into this land of the bible we look at that that area of the bible and we think why would anybody want that land but in that time period that was the center of the known world that was an important trade route that was an important land bridge and that was like a significant piece of real estate Everybody wanted that piece of real estate, and God wanted His people living there so that He could put Himself on display in the midst of those people. The battles that these people fought were not ethnic cleansing. It was not a genocide. The people that were in the land were guilty of extreme wickedness. God was punishing the wickedness of many of these cultures. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, the Lord reminds the people of Israel of this. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. That's an important phrase. We're going to come back to it. To accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When the people of God in this land became the anti-story and started acting like the Canaanites that were there before them, God took them into captivity and he used the ruthless Babylonians to do it. So God is not just a, uh, a... He's trying to like wipe out certain culture groups. What God is doing is punishing sin and he did it to his own people. He took them into captivity so they would learn how to take his yoke upon them. He brought them back from captivity. They still didn't learn it. So they sent Jesus as the exact representation to show them what it's like to live under the yoke of God. God somehow gave warnings to these people over hundreds of years. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God is talking to Abraham, and he's promising one day Abraham's going to live in this land with his descendants, but he says this, In the fourth generation of your descendants, you will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. In other words, God is somehow trying to get the Amorites to come to their senses, and to believe that he's God, and to stop acting wickedly we we get examples throughout the scripture in Joshua chapter 2 the Rahab the spy in Jericho when they come in uh, Rahab the prostitute excuse me when the spies come in says this i know that the lord has given you this land that a great fear of you has fallen on us the people of this land recognize there's a god sadly many of them don't repent if they just had repented maybe many of them fled maybe many of them said no 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 we've seen what this god has done we're out of here i mean after all the scripture says god drove them out maybe god brought a famine upon that land and like at the time of abraham when the famine came upon that land and the people of israel had to flee from that area maybe there weren't as many people in that land when they were just wiped out by the israelites i don't know you don't know But when we start taking these verses at faith value and think God is just this wrathful, vengeful, killing people without any warning or notice, that's not the God of Scripture. And somehow He's giving them warning or notice. Here's the thing. This book is not a history textbook. It was not written to give us every single detail of every single event that has ever happened in human history. In fact, in John chapter 20, the Apostle John himself is saying, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life. So I don't know why some of these passages are there. I don't know what kind of warning God gave these people. But there's enough to tell me there was warning given. There's enough to tell me that God is merciful. That God is not going to just come in and wipe people out because He's on a whim or because He's vengeful or wrathful. And we can take these scriptures and we can put them together. But the hardest question is always the infants. Isn't it? Why kill the babies? And I don't have a good answer for that one. I do know that Psalm 137 verse 9 that we read earlier, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks, is about the Babylonian captivity. It's about the people of Babylon. The armies are coming in. And actually, the armies of this time period, when all of the people were killed, they didn't have time to care for infants. So they assumed that just killing the infants as quickly as possible was the best thing to do. It was the humane way of war in that culture. I know, like in our world, it's like, ah, there's gotta be a better way. I don't know. Did God orchestrate it? Did God make it happen? If he did, I promise you it's descriptive and not prescriptive. Meaning it's telling us what happened, but not saying God wanted this to happen. God never wants the death of anyone. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should you and I. So, yeah, the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea, but maybe we shouldn't sing about it in church. Oh, but the people of Israel sang about it. Miriam danced with the tambourine, and God didn't strike her dead. Eh, Miriam had some issues. I mean, remember, she did get leprosy a couple chapters later. Just because God doesn't strike someone dead for something they do in the moment doesn't mean God is pleased with what they did. Okay? Okay. You can celebrate the victory of God without celebrating the death of your enemy. That's the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. The reality of life is hard things happen. Things I don't understand, things you don't understand, tragedy happens, difficulties happen. And I think when we gloss over difficult passages of the Bible and we really don't dig into them, I would hardly say what we did this morning was digging. I scratched the surface. If you want to read the chapter, he'll go even deeper into some of the stuff that I talked about today. But we have to start wrestling with some of these difficulties, not for the information it gives us. Studying this book is not about getting information. Studying this book is about bringing me into a relationship with a God that is going to ground me in every storm of my life. And if I do not wrestle with the difficult parts, I will not be fully grounded when that storm comes. That's why I keep repeating over and over and challenging you. Get in the book. Use this resource. Come out on Saturday and dig into the scripture with us and study. I know it's difficult to carve out time from our schedules. I know that we, don't always, we can't always make things happen. But we've got to start somewhere and we ought to start today. Here's the reality of life. I hate movies with sad endings. I hate the Christmas shoes. Let's just be honest. It's the worst Christmas movie ever made. Moms should not die at Christmas. Moms shouldn't die ever. But they do. But here's the thing. I'm not going to entertain myself with that. Okay? Because life is full of stuff like that. I don't need to see a movie That's just going to stir those emotions up. Okay? Life is hard. And what we have to remind ourselves in these moments is hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I have to recognize it and I have to fight against it. There's not going to be an easy answer. The emotions are not going to end quickly. I'm not going to give someone this magic verse that's going to like take all their pain away. We're called as the body of Christ to mourn with those who mourn. Not to try to get them to get over their mourning quickly. Mourn with them. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. We know that's true. Yeah, it doesn't make me feel better today. It doesn't help the emotion of the loss that I'm going through right now better. But it does help me stay centered in the midst of it and to lean into Him I don't care if I get the facts. I don't care if I get the information. But I need the one that's going to stick with me. Who isn't going to be rattled when I'm angry that, that something broke out against somebody. That, that's angry, that I'm angry that, that, that infants have to die. I don't understand it. But I'm going to wrestle with it. And I'm going to ground myself in the one that from beginning to end is full of compassion slow to anger bounding in love and that's who he is let's make sure that's who we're presenting out there yeah if oh but pastor Tom if they stay on that path they're going to be they're going to be killed yeah they are So how should we change our schedules to get in their way? May they go to hell tripping over our dead bodies. Those are the revivalists of the past. That's what led them to pray for revival in a nation, not pass a petition to get something to be changed. They knew the only help for change came from there. Let's be a people that cries out for the transformation of our city. So, Father, thank you for your word. Man, it is a light for our feet. It's a lamp for our path. It's a lamp for our light for our path, lamp for our feet. It does it all. It illuminates, it teaches, it trains, it corrects, it rebukes. God, do all those things. I need them all. I need to be corrected. I need to be trained. I need to be rebuked. God, use your word to help us as a body to know how to take your yoke on us and live it out, to bring lasting transformation to the city of Huron, to the state of South Dakota, to the United States, to our world, to be a part of bringing restoration everywhere we go. Help us not to be weary in doing what is good, knowing that if we keep striving for restoration at the right time, We will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Holy Spirit, help us this week especially to be aware of the cost. Maybe the cost to personal comfort. Maybe the cost to our schedules or time. Maybe even the cost of our own lives. Help us to be willing to lay our lives down for the sake of others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope the series that we've been through was helpful to you in some way. I hope the book is a great resource to you as well. And uh, just a reminder that if you want to sign up for the next weekend event, please do that by Thursday. Uh, Stop by the table in the back before you leave today. Offering baskets are out there. Also information about what's upcoming, uh, different events, the events uh, here at our church, Restoration Church and James Valley Christian School, the events coming up this week. So thanks for being here. God bless you as you go.